you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. This is How to LA. I'm Brian De Los Santos. This has been a tough couple of weeks for a lot of people. The news coming out of the Middle East has been terrifying. Israel's billion-dollar iron wall was supposed to keep Hamas militants out. Instead, Israelis were left virtually defenseless as fighters from Gaza swept through town after town. There have been thousands of reported deaths in the region following Hamas's attack on Israel, which killed the most Jews in a single day since the Holocaust. In response, Israel declared war and began launching attacks in Gaza. The root cause of what we see today is the continuation of Israeli illegal occupation of Palestinian land. As of the publication of this episode, the bombardments on both sides continue. Block by block, Gaza is being blasted into dust as Israel's punishing bombardment continues. Everybody that is a combat soldier is right now in the front line, getting ready to retaliate at Gaza. With Israel postured to wage a full-scale ground assault at any time in Gaza, Hamas has posted video of an Israeli woman it claims is one of the hostages it holds. It can be hard to keep up with all the new headlines of the day or the stuff we see on social media. It's a lot. And it's heartbreaking. We are not here to discuss the geopolitics, but we want to try to do our part to help our audience process this. We know a lot of people in LA are hurting over this. We all have friends, neighbors, relatives, and colleagues who have been directly affected. There have been protests in the streets and on college campuses. The Jewish community in LA is the second largest in the US after New York, with more than half a million people. The Israeli diaspora accounts for about half of that. And there are nearly 95,000 folks of Arab descent living here. Of course, we know that within those communities, there are people from different faiths and cultures, and their experiences can be quite different. Another real thing that's happening is that you might have family members or friends with opposing reactions or opinions about the conflict in the Middle East. And you may be wondering, what's your place, if you even have one? Overall, there's just a lot of trauma people are experiencing now in different ways. So, today, how to cope on a community level. This is a time where we should not be isolating. This is a time where we should be intentional about staying connected to our social groups, our social networks. Social connection is just key. And a quick note. This chat is not meant to be the answer for someone experiencing a mental health crisis. If you need help and you live in California, you can call the state's peer-run hotline at 1-800-845-6264. We're all affected by horrific graphic images to some degree. It evokes 
an emotional response. Our guest today is Rick Williamson. I am a PhD clinical psychologist, and I am the executive director of the Amada Institute of Behavioral Health and Wellness. The Amada Institute of Behavioral Health and Wellness is a group of psychologists dedicated to serving the most vulnerable members of at-risk communities. We are working with communities of color or communities that might be undocumented, both locally here in Los Angeles, but also internationally. So, you know, we're obviously talking about this because of the conflict in the Middle East, the attack on Israel, the ongoing conflict and Gaza. Um, the conflict affects a huge population of people and people who are tuning into the news or just trying to understand what's going on. It affects almost all of us, really. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of collective trauma and what it really is? I mean, we all understand or can wrap our heads around, you know, what it's like to be on the receiving end of something that is threatening or horrendous. You know, we understand individual trauma, but oftentimes we, we have to recognize that as communities, there is a cost to the exposure of violence within a community. There's a cost to exposure to suffering, particularly human engineered suffering. These are traumas, these are vigilances that can be actually passed down. A lot of times we try to think of them in terms of not just uh, problem symptoms, but how have communities learned to actually cope? They've learned to cope with these constant threats and realities in ways um, that start to show up in terms of how people respond and navigate situations. And so you do not have to be the direct recipient of something horrible to actually also, though, basically be dealing with the traumas that might be historical and how that might actually shape an individual and how they navigate through life. You know, I think that another aspect of this um, idea of collective uh, trauma is the exposure to violence over social media. Is that considered part of the collective trauma now, even for those who don't live in that community that it's affecting? There are distinctions that mental health professionals make around these terms. Um, and so when we're talking about PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, the, those types of uh, impacts that severely uh, impact the person, it gets in the way of their functioning. Typically, we're not talking about what people are exposed to through the media. But I also want to be very clear, it does not mean that people are not affected by what they're exposed to in social media and in media. Sometimes we miss the fact that it really does depend on what is your connection to that impacted community. You know, if you're around when 9-11 happened, people who are watching those towers fall repeatedly through the news media, you know, they're processing that in a particular way. But if you are actually from New York, you're processing that in a different way, in a deeper way. We sometimes have to stop to realize it is also our connection to that impacted community, which is a determinant in how we're actually processing this information. So as we see these images, you know, that are coming across, not just in news media, but uh, the most graphic images that can be shared on social media, you know, people who are members of the Jewish communities, you know, worldwide, people who are members of the Palestinian community, you know, they are processing these images in ways that are in some ways deeper than maybe those of us who aren't connected. There is a historical trauma in these communities. And as a result, these are situations, events, images that can be constant reminders of the threats that exist, um, of the vulnerabilities that, that some people may actually carry, and there's a constancy to it. And so you do not have to necessarily be the direct recipient 
of the worst of it. But yet these reminders speak to a very real reality that has shown itself, you know, over the decades, over the hundreds of years um, that absolutely impact people. And I would say, keep in mind too, you know, a, a number of people, there, there is a risk in how openly they may talk about these things. Those risks are real depending on their social circles. Um, so those risks do not always have to be life and death. Those risks, though, can also be psychological. Those risks can be emotional. Um, there can be real losses and compromises in terms of relationships, depending on how one actually engages these things. I think part of this conversation is cluing in to people that what is goes around us and what is happening on the news, on your social media feeds, it, it does turn into feelings and, and signs of, of stress, of maybe hitting your mental health in the ways that you haven't experienced before. I, I don't know what you have to say to that effect of like what people are experiencing by seeing images, yeah. videos on their timelines is very real. Yeah. You know, we're, we're all affected by horrific graphic images to some degree. It evokes an emotional response. That, that's also why those things appear in the media to, to get our attention. Those things register with us. And, and a part of the response, there's just a sort of a natural physiological response to things that are horrendous and things that are violent. And part of that response is, is a bit of a stress response. And depending on how one sort of registers those instances, that stress response can be tremendous, you know, based on their own history. Um, it can be slight. But there is, an, there is an accumulation of those stress hormones because of the constancy of the images and the exposure through social media, through the media. And that accumulation then is accompanied by an accumulation of stress hormone, particularly cortisol. And once that accumulation sort of has been there over a long period of time, we also start to see certain symptoms that start to be associated with elevated stress hormone. More to come in our conversation with Dr. Rick Williamson in just a minute. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Hey, what's up, y'all? I'm Pindarvis Harshaw, host of the Right Nowish podcast. Every week, I talk to the people who are creating art and culture and spreading it to the universe. As an artist, you always meet yourself. Every year, you're a different person. Essentially, we normalize a space where you can show up as your authentic self. Check out Right Nowish, rooted in California's Bay Area, speaking to you. It's so many people of color, so many queer people. It's like I'm being celebrated in my fullness. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. You're listening to How to LA from LAS Studios. Today, we're talking with Dr. Rick Williamson about collective trauma. There have been studies that say that journalists have the same exposure of the chemicals that happen in your body when first responders arrive to a scene of a crime, of an accident, right. or whatever it is. First, I would make a distinction between journalists whose job it is to actually engage this content and, and be able to bring the story to the rest of the world. Um, because 
for journalists, oftentimes we do see that they register this in a way that can actually lead to PTSD in, in more severe forms. Whereas those of us who are you know, far removed, we don't have a role in the process. And I think that's a protective factor. But even the consumption, though, and, and the constant digesting of, of these images and these stories, it can lead to all sorts of you know, emotional um, experiences in terms of increased in anxiety, um, in terms of even, even um, it may not necessarily be full-blown depression, but people can feel a bit of melancholy as a result of it, or even grief. I try to help people understand that, you know, look for those early signs that you're actually on stress overload. They can include just not being able to fall asleep as fast at night. One of the things that people don't realize is that when you have elevated cortisol, which is a stress hormone, that interferes with your sleep. It is the thing that wakes you up first thing in the morning because it's in your body at the highest state naturally first thing in the morning, and it falls over the course of the day. But if you've got constant stressors, things that you're reacting to through the day from an emotional visceral standpoint, that cortisol is actually spiking. And so when it's time to go to sleep at night, it hasn't been falling in sort of the predictable way so that your body can shut down at the end of the day. And it also can cause a bit of uh, short-term memory lapses. Um, so when you've got prolonged stress hormone in your, in your system, that affects a certain part of the brain, the hippocampus, which is really involved with laying down memories. And so people might find that they may forget where they placed the keys, you know, as they left mm -hmm. the house, you know, did they lock the door? Do they have to travel back to see if they've let the garage down? You know, and if you're looking for your keys and the keys have been in your hand the whole time and you have a few of those lapses, you know, over the course of, of the days and the weeks, people may actually feel quite alarmed. Maybe I have, you know, early Alzheimer's. It's just a sign that, yeah, this is actually a prolonged stress hormone and this is how it affects the brain. And it starts to affect that part of the brain connected to short-term memory. What are some of the long-term effects of this constant consumption of intense imagery and messaging, keeping yourself stressed about it? So yeah, the long-term effects of, of the elevated stress around these types of images, you know, can turn into metabolic disorders, metabolic issues like hypertension, diabetes. Um, the thing, you know, the, the brain is connected to the body. You know, we, we often think and put a separation there, but but what goes on in the brain and how you think and how you process absolutely shows up in the body. In, in these medical conditions. And these are some of the long-term effects, as well as there can be a desensitization um, to, the, to these images. Um, and, and particularly, you know, if individuals have um, depression of their own, these are the types of things that, that therapists then become very vigilant for. Because if you think about um, what actually can be quite dangerous when people become suicidal, it's not only that they feel depressed and sad, um, but they also have cultivated this capacity to actually do self-injury. And what are the things that cultivate that capacity to do self-harm are vivid imagery of demise, you know, constant exposure to human suffering where you start to basically habituate out or you become desensitized to things that your, your natural self-protective instinct tries to move away from. And that's such a primal drive that when that gets habituated, it doesn't leave a vacuum. It actually gets replaced with sort of the opposite drive, the, the drive that moves people towards that sort of a self-harm, towards that sort of a demise. And so people often, when they truly have the type of depression that, that's connected with a suicidal depression, they will talk about 
What actually brings them some sense of peace or comfort is the thought of their own demise, the vivid imagery of themselves being dead. And so that's one of the risks that come along with this constant exposure to the graphic horrors that, that we're seeing. There are people out there who actually are, are wrestling with depression and wrestling with um, these factors, and that feeds that in a way that is actually not helpful. So what do you think are some solutions to the social media and news-related stress that comes out of conflict, out of other types of, you know, attacks or, or even political divisive, you know, challenges that happen in, in, in our society? If you could have a wave, a magic wand, um, thinking large scale, whether it's legislation on social media or certain things that could help um, better our mental health when it comes to these things. Well, you know, if I could wave a magic wand, I would definitely ask for a few things. One would definitely be a community understanding of the need to actually limit exposure to the the worst images, to the graphic images um, that are there for our consumption constantly in social media. Um, you know, there's a such thing as social media holidays, right, where, where we might reinforce and encourage each other to, to step back and, and maybe put a block on the ads that notify us, you know, when, when these alarms go off on our phone about the latest, you know, uh, evocative situation. Um, you know, if there's a community understanding of that where we can reinforce each other with just limits to our exposure to these things, that would be incredibly helpful. Um, and also, I would say, you know, just being um, in, in good, healthy routines. Oftentimes, you know, we're, we're talking about an impact that's, you know, driven in part by elevated stress hormones based on the stimulus that we're constantly exposed to. But we can lower those, those stress hormone levels. Physical exercise, you know, three, four days a week, 20 minutes at a time, that is typically enough to lower that cortisol. And, um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, we're talking about horrors, that get visited upon people based on conflict. That, that's human-engineered travesty. And, and when we're dealing with those worst situations, you know, social connection is just key. Uh, even in the worst situations, when people don't know each other, you know, you'll find people congregating or reaching out for help. This is a time where we should not be isolating. This is a time where we should be intentional about staying connected to our social groups, our social um, networks, and I think finally, I would also say this is also a time to stay connected to um, your spiritual resources. If you have them, stay connected to them. And that includes any of the spiritual disciplines, um, the religious um, activities that you have. Um, and if you don't have religious activities, uh, the spiritual, the things that bring you meaning and purpose, stay connected there. Because at the end of the day, how do we make sense of the horrendous things and not lose hope? This is where that spiritual domain really steps forward. If you're able to give our Muslim and Jewish listeners who might be experiencing this to a higher degree than other folks, what are some tips how to deal with the stress of this? Well, first, I think the similarly, you know, this is a time for them to also stay connected to the communities of safety that they've established. It's important to recognize the vulnerabilities um, that exist in both of those communities, uh, both historically and present day. Um, and as a result of that real reality, safety is key. That actually does something in the body as well. It, it produces oxytocin, which is a stress, it's a hormone that counteracts the stress hormone in terms of the negative effects of the cortisol elevation. Um, and I would also say too, for, for members of both communities, 
this may be a time where people in your social networks reach out to try to have conversations about these things. And, and that typically is a good thing. But give yourself permission that you may not actually feel like doing so all the time. Oftentimes, we fail to realize that there can still be a real risk in talking about these things and, and really expressing and voicing how one feels about it, depending on their social circles. And so everybody should be able to monitor what that risk is and engage effectively how you might want to respond to people who do approach you uh, to engage you with questions or, or to reach out to you. It is up to you to figure out when is the best time to do that. And for those of us who are not Jewish or Muslim or don't have family in the Middle East and don't know what to say or how to be, what's your best advice for what we can offer to our friends or colleagues who are grieving and going through a tough time right now and who are members of those communities? You know, it's an opportunity for us to educate ourselves. These are situations that have a high degree of nuance and complexity. Doing some self-education is helpful. But also, you know, I would say don't be afraid to reach out to our Jewish and Palestinian and, and Muslim brothers and sisters and siblings. You know, be, be able to reach out, and but also know and understand that maybe they feel like engaging, maybe they don't. It's okay either way, but respectfully acknowledge the moment. Rick, thank you so much for your time today. You were so calming with this interview, so I appreciate your time. Oh, Brian, my pleasure. Thank you. Take care of yourself. That was Rick Williamson. Thank you for tuning in to this important episode today. I hope it offered you some solace in this tough time, no matter what your background or connection to the crisis is. As Rick said, now is an important time to stay connected to your communities. And remember, it's okay to slow down. We'll be back tomorrow. For now, please take care of yourselves. Hasta mañana. This episode was produced by Megan Botel. Our other team members are Monica Bushman, Evan Jacoby, Victoria Alejandro, and Erica Washington. Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.